Please remain calm during the entirety of the show. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Doug Bursch, and you are listening to The Fairly Spiritual Show. On today's show, I'm going to wax eloquently about eloquent wax. Nope, uh, this is what I want to talk about. Sometimes when we face a societal problem or a personal problem, we immediately try to find the moral or ethical causes. Maybe it's not always a moral collapse or an ethical collapse. Maybe there's something more practical going on. We'll look at problem solving in a non-moral, ethical way. Well, that doesn't sound right. On today's Fairly Spiritual Show. Welcome back to The Fairly Spiritual Show. I am your host, Dr. Doug Bursch. And, uh, okay, so we're going to talk about problem solving when we don't just look at the ethical and moral reasons, but maybe there are some sociological reasons or practical reasons or just technological reasons that are influencing the way we treat each other. We'll look at that on today's show. But first, I need to talk about the elephant that is in the room. I'm sorry. The elephant that's in the room. Uh, you know this. I, I know this. Um, I've not been doing these podcasts on a very consistent basis. And I'd like to apologize to you, but an apology might make you think that I'm going to change. So I, I don't know if I can apologize or if I can just say, that's just kind of how it's happening right now. Uh, I've been thinking about a couple things. One, uh, so I just released, oh, what was it, April 20th? So I guess we're less than a month it's been out, but uh, released my new book, Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. And really, why have you not picked up a copy yet? I mean, honestly, there's really no excuse. No, you, you're not condemned, you're not judged, but I'd love for you to pick up a copy. But here's the deal. So with Posting Peace, I am just saying yes to any interview, any podcast, Um I'm working with IVP Press, and they uh, graciously provided me with a publicist who sets up interviews. And whenever she sends me anything, just anything, it's like, would you like to? I just say yes. I don't even read the rest of it. I'm just going to go on. I'm just, I'm going to go door to door if I have to. But I've noticed that I might need to be a little bit more, oh, what is that? Discerning and saying yes, because sometimes people will just directly talk to me, and I'll say yes first, and then I'll think, you know, I don't, I don't have any idea what that podcast is. You know, maybe it's some sort of a extremist cult or some sort of white supremacist podcast. So now, before saying yes, when someone comes to me directly, I, I at least go listen to like five minutes of their podcast and think, yeah, sure, sure, I'll be on there. Uh, and then as far as when uh, IVP comes to me, I just say yes. You know, it's their fault. If it's a bad interview, I'll just blame them. So anyway, I've been doing all these interviews and talking endlessly, which really is, uh, it's the joy for any pastor, uh, the ability to just talk endlessly. And uh, as I've been doing these podcasts and these radio interviews, I realize that I don't feel like I have any energy left 
afterwards to provide you, my true fans, the people who've been with me way before I ever wrote a book, I don't have the energy to give you a podcast. Or at least that's what I believe. So I'm sorry that I have not been producing podcasts on a regular basis. But the sorry, again, is not a commitment to do this more on a regular basis. It's just a sorry that this is the sorry state of this individual. I just, I just, you get, you get, you get tired of listening to yourself. And after doing lots of podcasts and answering the same questions or different questions with the same topic, I just get to this point where I'm like, really, uh, no one needs to hear any more of me. But, but here I am. Here, we're going to do it today. And so a couple things that happen whenever I do these podcasts. Uh, one, if the house is completely quiet, the moment I start, everyone comes home. And suddenly, people that I didn't even know existed in my family come home. It's, there's just you know hundreds of people in the house. So that happens. And another thing that happens is uh, the Red Baron shows up. And the Red Baron is what I affectionately like to call the person who loves to do stunt plane work. You know, stunt planes, when a plane is at an air show and they do loop-de-loops and stall their engine and wow the crowd. Well, there seems to be a stunt plane uh, person who has decided to do all of um, her practicing right above our house. And so whenever I need it to be quiet, whenever I have an important interview, Zoom call or anything... The Red Baron comes out, and she starts doing those loop-de-loops. She say, Doug, why are you saying her? Well, I've done a little research, and she's well-known in the community, and I guess everybody loves what she does, uh, except for me. Again, I don't have a problem with someone having that as a career. I just have a problem of them doing it, like, right over my house on a regular basis. And yes, I sound like a grumpy old man. I just saw an article today that said in the workforce that the best people to hire are geriatric millennials, which just made the millennials upset because uh, I'm a Generation X and I, I don't think I'm geriatric, but the millennials are younger than me and they're really upset. And you know, nothing you want to do, nothing worse than getting a bunch of geriatric millennials upset at you. So I'm, I'm not going to complain anymore. We're just going to get into this. I'm going to give you a podcast. I'm going to talk about a principle here that I think is kind of fascinating. This is something I've had to learn. I have struggled with this in the past. Uh, by the way, in the past, I also struggle with it in the present. But it's something that I realize that I do, and I don't want to do as frequently as I do. And it's this issue. Whenever I confront a problem or an issue, I immediately begin to think in moral or ethical terms. And I think the fact that I first think about things in moral and ethical terms is a problem. Now hear me clearly. Everything, every behavior at some level has moral and ethical implications. But I think sometimes we cut ourselves off from truly understanding a problem or an issue when we immediately begin to use moral language. Because there's something in moral language where it's about who is doing it right, who is doing it wrong, who is sinning, and who is not sinning, who is following God's plan, and who is following the plan of the enemy. Now, now whether we use that language, it almost becomes like that, where we're not just defending ourselves in an argument or defending ourselves in a conflict. 
We're defending our righteousness, or we're defending our faith, or we're defending our God against the onslaught of the pagan existence around us. So I want to give you three examples of where I see this play itself out and where I'm trying to grow and not first coming up with a moral or ethical answer, but seeing, are there other reasons this problem is happening? First, let me address a topic I address in the book Posting Peace. So why are we so divisive online? There's the problem. Why are we so angry and divisive? And why don't people get along? Now, if I'm going to ask you that question, what, what's going to be your answer? I've found that for many people, their answer, and I would be included in this group of many people, their answer is often a moral or ethical answer. So if I ask the question, why don't people get along? Or why do we fight so much? Or why don't we reconcile online? People will say stuff like, well, we're just really self-centered and selfish. Or we've forgotten, you know, the mandates of Christ and we're not living the Christian life. We're living for other things, for pagan things. Uh, we're just not as kind as we used to be. We've forgotten how to be kind. We've forgotten how to be caring as a society. All of these answers are moral answers. They're ethical answers. But I don't know if they actually answer the problem. This is the argument I make in the book, and, and I really believe this is true. That the main reason why we don't reconcile as much, or the reason we're more divided and divisive in our culture, is we don't reconcile and we don't get along because we don't have to. In the past, people reconciled, or tried to get along, or tried to go through conflicts because they had to, and it was an issue of the scarcity of people. Let's say, let's say before the car. And you've heard me talk about this before, but I think it is an important thing to look at because of most existence existed before we had the automobile. But before you had the automobile, what was your social network of people that you could hang out with? It was really quite small. It was basically people within walking distance. So uh, what was your social network? It was your neighbors. It was probably family and extended family for most of existence. People lived near their family, their parents, their grandparents, their brothers, sisters, aunts and uncles, nieces and nephews. So that was your social network. And then for your religious network, what was that? Well, it was really a, a church that was in walking distance or a church that you could travel to in a carriage or by horse. And you couldn't go that far on a Sunday to get to that church. So what were your social network options when it came to church. Well, you couldn't drive in an hour direction. You couldn't drive to the city, you know, next to your city. You basically had a spiritual network of maybe two or three churches that you could go to your whole life. And the reality of that is probably that wasn't even your whole, you know, options because one of the churches might be a Catholic church or there might be two extreme theological positions, so you might only have one church in your town that actually represents pretty much what you believe theologically. So what do you do when a conflict occurs in an environment like that, when you have very few people to interact with? Well, you try to get along when conflicts occur. And you try to get along when conflicts occur, not because you're more moral or righteous or ethical, you try to get along because you have to. If you don't get along with that church, there's no other church to go to. There's no, you can't just go home and 
start Googling and picking from the thousands and thousands of sermons that you can find online. You know, we've had our services online with COVID, and I think in June we're going to finally meet in person. Uh, But I notice even as on Sundays when I'm watching the service and worshiping along with the church and we're live chatting, I noticed on YouTube on the side there's all these other churches popping up, just literally for people who are engaged in our, our service, just to say, hey, what, what's going on with that church? And that looks kind of interesting. And, and I'm just, or our church is just one presentation of thousands of other presentations that you could just watch from your home. Why did people get along before the internet or try to get along a little better than they do now? Well, they had less opportunity to connect with people. They had less uh, of a social network or social networks. Why did you get along with your neighbor? Because if you didn't go through a conflict with your neighbor, you had no one to talk to. Uh, even think in the context of how many books people owned. Just to find information, to be educated about something, uh, we had limited access to truth. We had limited access to knowledge. Most books are, what, 5, 10, 20 years old that you had in your library? So where did you get your knowledge? You had to build relationships, and the relationships you had were limited by the people that were within walking distance. So why did culture have a stronger value of going through a conflict? Well, because we had to. Now, that wasn't always good, right? We know in cultures like that, when you only had your neighbors and your family and the people close to you and only one church in town— People could control that reality. So you could have a pastor that was incredibly controlling because the pastor knew there really was nowhere else for you to go. Or you could have a controlling neighbor that knew, uh, you know, if you don't get along with me and I make you look bad to the rest of the neighbors, you got nowhere else to go. So you got to find a way to serve my interests and my wants. And so you found in cultures like that, you had hierarchies of people in positions of power and control. And some people felt like they constantly were trying to do what was right or, or what was you know, seen as respectful by other people, because if they didn't do that, they would be ostracized. So this isn't necessarily the good old days, but it's a, it's a principle we need to know. Why did we not get along, or excuse me, why did we go through conflicts and come to some form of reconciliation or find a way to abide with difficult people in the past? Well, in many ways, we did that because we had to. But now in the present, we don't have to. The strength of social media, of the internet, is it opens us up to thousands, millions of relationships. I don't need to know my neighbors because I can connect with people online. I can replace that community. I can replace that need for human interaction with, with a, a group that I connect with online, that it's a special group that's just about my special politics, or it's a special group just about my views of entertainment or my ideologies or my theology or my political convictions, I can find online a myriad of groups and people that meet my needs. And then online, if I ever run into a conflict, I don't have to make that relationship right because people become replaceable. I can just find someone else to hang out with. I can just go to another group. I was looking at a pastor's group that I was involved in, and some people were upset. And this is a Facebook page. They were upset that they didn't like the rules of the Facebook page. And so one of the people said, "Let's." there's another small church pastor group that I'd invite you to go to instead. And that's what happens in the internet age. If you've got 50 
pastor's groups you can be involved in, that you can be involved in one as long as it meets your needs, and the moment it doesn't meet your needs, you just go somewhere else. But let's say before that, if you had no online communication and you're a pastor, guess what? You either get along with the three pastors in your town, or you have no fellowship. Maybe fellowship of writing letters, of maybe reading a magazine about what other ministers are doing. It's one of the reasons even pastors don't connect with each other, because we don't have to. We can find other people in other places. So that's just one principle where it's not really a moral issue, but the technology itself is causing these divides. Remember, I have three issues, so that's the first one. Here's the second one, the concept of why is the church declining? There are so many books on why the church is declining. And if you spend any time on Twitter, some people just consider it their life work or their life's work to tweet and post and write and educate the world about what is wrong with the church. And when we talk about the church declining, almost always do people immediately go to moral terms. The church is declining because pastors are terrible and churches are legalistic and there's abuse and there's harm and people are leaving the church and not being part of the church because the church is unethical. It's not doing what Christ has called us to do. And, and by the way, these all might be true things. But is that the real reason the church is declining? And there's so many books on this, and there'll be more books because we love to make money off of problems, and so we want to buy books to solve the problem and give the answer for how the church can grow again. But if I look at why the church is declining, I think one of the primary reasons the church is declining, besides the moral and ethical problems of the church, is the fact that all community groups are declining. There's a sociological trend that is going on. If you look at any other uh, organizations, let's say like uh, Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or the Elks Club or Kiwanis or Seroptimist, any of these community groups where people just gather together for some sort of purpose or community, almost all of those expressions are declining. Even concepts like unions are declining. Now, why are these groups declining? Is it because all these groups have suddenly become unethical and immoral? Or is something else happening? There's a fascinating thing to look at, that when we moved into the suburbs, like when people moved from uh, the cities or from their traditional family homes and family communities and moved out into the suburbs, as we moved out into the suburbs, we became more disconnected. We had these new communities. We didn't really know anyone. And guess what began to thrive? when people moved out into the suburbs. These community groups, the PTA became big in the schools. And one of the reasons these special community groups became so big is people were isolated and they needed relationship. So they were in their new house in the suburbs with a bunch of people they didn't know, and so they formed these community groups. So where do we see growth? We see growth in the PTA. We see growth even in unions. We see growth in, in almost every expression of the Elks and Kiwanis, and I'm trying to think of all the different community groups that you see on the sign when you come into a city, because it was a way to form community, and you also saw church growth. That it wasn't just about Christ. It wasn't just about the gospel. It was about people who lived in a level of isolation, and they could find community. They would come together, and they could do a potluck together. They could uh, hang out together, and that was a form of entertainment, 
a form of connection, a form of belonging. So now all these organizations are declining. And why are they declining? Because we have more options than ever before to have connection and community. And that's why I believe the church is going to continue to decline, or at least decline in its present state as people gathering together you know, in a building or in a set place. And when we take this seriously, we might deal with the problem in different ways. Do I think it's good to gather together? You bet. But people aren't going to gather together anymore just because they need people to hang out with. And in fact, what you're finding is healthier people have other ways to find expressions of community. So what happens is the only people now who are coming to the church are not the only people, but a greater majority of people who are coming to the church are people who have extreme brokenness. They're isolated from their family and their friends. They're disconnected from their communities. They have not been able to connect in these other settings. They're not able to maybe afford counseling or other things like that. So they come into the church with tremendous needs, and their need is for a sense of community. Well, that's really hard to pastor a church when people come in really needy and really broken. The people who aren't extremely needy and extremely broken, they don't need the church. They have other places they can express their, their needs for social socializing. Even in the context of entertainment, which we don't like to talk about, there was a level of entertainment when it came to the church, and not pagan entertainment. It was just enjoyable. People didn't have access to unlimited music, so coming in and hearing music and singing together was a form of entertainment as a form of worship. Coming together and hearing someone speak and having that event of of the liturgy is something that they weren't getting anywhere else. They, they didn't have that much access. Now we have unlimited access to music and unlimited access to preaching and teaching. And we've got other things replacing it. We've got podcasts and TED Talks and all sorts of other competing, and I know we don't like to use that word, but competing entertainment that fulfills the need in people for connection, for information, but doesn't deal with their spiritual identity. So again, we can moralize it, and we can keep writing all these books about, well, the reason the church is declining is because just Christians are terrible and pastors are terrible, or we can recognize that almost all community groups are declining. Now, there are exceptions to this where some community groups are growing, but they're often growing around very specific things, you know, a specific hiking group or specific political advocacy or just people who really like plants. It's a very specific, one-focused thing. And that's very different than the holistic expression of Christianity and the church. Okay, I said three things, and I don't want to talk too much today. But the third area where I think we should not first look at things in a moral way or an ethical way comes with our closest relationships. And I'll give an example with this. Uh, For me, one of the biggest growth areas was to stop moralizing and spiritualizing the conflicts that exist in my marriage. And if Jennifer was with me right now, everything I'm saying she would be fine with, she'd agree with. I'm not telling any secrets here. But for my wife and I, most of our conflicts were not about me being more ethical or her being more ethical, me being closer to God or her being closer to God. Most of them were about the fact that we have very different biology. And I'm not talking about biology of women are like this and men are like that. I'm just talking biology. That her brain works very differently than mine. And my brain works very differently than hers. 
And I could go through all the different ways that our brains are different, but these are hardwired things. They're biological things. And even if there's a certain level of nurture involved, the nature of how my wife's brain works and how my brain works, it's pretty darn hardwired. But when we were first married, when we'd face a conflict, I'd immediately think in terms of moral language. And I would say things like, if you loved me, you wouldn't do that. Even, you know, worse things. If, if you loved God, you wouldn't do that. And I'd make assumptions based on her actions that were rooted in spirituality and moral language. So let me give a practical example of this. I tend to be a very big picture, thinking about multiple things, random, abstract. I'm thinking the next thing ahead. I'm never really present in the moment because I'm always thinking about the next moment. That is how my body is wired. I don't sit down and intentionally try to be that. That is just who I am. That's who I was as a little kid. That's how I am now. And I don't know if that's because of my dyslexia. I don't know if it's because of some other brain things, but it is a hardwired brain reality. Now, my wife, and these are very simplistic. I'm, I'm narrowing these things down just so you can understand. It's more complicated than this. But my wife tends to be someone who can be incredibly focused on one thing. She's just fully present on the one thing. And she's very sequential and she's very linear. So she'll start with the one thing and then she'll move to the next thing. And so you see that when I'm in a situation, I'm constantly thinking about the next thing. When she's in that situation, she is fully present. Now, those behaviors have strengths and weaknesses. What is the strength of being able to not just be in the moment, but also be in the future? Well, the strength is anticipation. The strength is planning. The strength is, I'm thinking about where we're going next. I'm thinking about the time. This is going to take this much time. That's going to take that much time. So we're going to make room for what we want to do or what we don't want to do. So there's a strength to that. What's the weakness of that? Well, I'm never fully present in the moment. I'm always thinking about the next thing. My mind is wandering. I, I lose the power of just being present with someone. So you can see strengths and weaknesses to that kind of hardwired personality. For my wife, what are the strengths and weaknesses of someone just being present? Well, one, she's just present. She's with me. She's not worried about the next thing. She's not, oh boy, I can't wait for this to get over. A tremendous level of contentment that whatever the day is, the day is. A willingness to go through each day, like, I don't have strong expectations of this day. Uh, she has a strong sense of she can enjoy a Monday where she's taking the kids to school and, and doing things that might seem very mundane. She can enjoy that day almost as much as she can enjoy where we're going off on a little vacation for the day or taking a journey with the family into the country or on a hike. What's the weakness of her kind of personality? Well, the weakness is sometimes she doesn't anticipate what's coming next. She's not thinking about the next thing. She's not thinking about the big picture. She's not differentiating between something being really important or not so important. Well, you can see, and those of you listening, you might have marriages like this, you can see the problems, right? So a problem can be is there's something important in the day that I think we need to make room for, and Jennifer forgets. And I say to her, how could you forget that? How could you not make room for that? How could that not be important to you? If you loved me, you would remember that. If you loved me, you would have made time for that. If you love me 
And what I'm doing is I'm moralizing and I'm judging and I'm giving ethical and all these spiritual responses to something that has nothing to do with her love for me, has nothing to do with her ethics or her spirituality. It just has to do with how her brain functions. And by the way, me thinking about all these things has nothing to do with my spirituality or how ethical I am. It's just how my brain operates. And one of the things that even showed me that is for some things where my wife didn't, un- didn't think about it or understand it, the moment I brought it up, she cared about it. She'd say, oh, I'm sorry. I know that's important. I'm sorry. I, I-, I should have thought of that. Uh, thank you for telling me. But I'd be like, that's not good enough. It's not a good, good enough for you only to care about it when I point it out. If you loved me, you would care about it on your own. You'd bring it up. I wouldn't have to bring it up. All of that is moralizing language that is condemning someone for how they're made. Do you get what I'm saying here? It's helped my wife and I immensely to just accept how each other has been made. For me to realize that because my wife is kind of present in the moment, she's not always thinking about what comes next. But it doesn't mean she doesn't value it. Her brain just doesn't think about it. So instead of condemning her, instead of judging her, I accept her. And I can tell her, you know, I wish you'd thought of this, but I understand it's not personal. So here it is. And I bring it to her and I accept her saying, oh, I value that. Sorry, I didn't think about it. My wife can learn to accept me as well, where she can be like, you know, Doug, I, I wish you were kind of present right now and you weren't in a hundred directions, but I know that's kind of how your mind works. So I can say, can we be present right here and not be worrying about something else? She can say that to me, but I don't have to worry that she's condemning me or judging me. So I gave you three areas here that I think are important where uh, we could talk about the idea of why are people not reconciling anymore? Well, it's because we're just falling apart morally. Or it could be the technology is causing us to to be more divided. Uh, the issue is, why is the church declining? Well, it could be that pastors are bad and Christians are bad and they just need to do things differently. Or it could be that just as a society, with the options we have, almost all community organizations are declining. And so we're going to have to look at what does it look like to gather together as a community? Uh, what challenges are we going to face regardless of whether the church is doing it right or wrong? And then the third one here. In your marriage, are you going to maybe stop using all the strong, ethical, moral, spiritual language with your wife, with your kids, with your friends, with your parents, with your neighbors? Are you willing to first see that there might be other things happening that are causing this conflict or this divide? I think these are things worth thinking about. Father God, I ask that you'd help us. You'd help us not to be quick to judge, quick to moralize, quick to spiritualize. You'd help us to really listen, to really see, to really value and respect the differences that exist between us, to be able to understand that culture does influence the way we abide together. And sometimes it makes people who actually care about each other do things that are not very healthy. Would you show us how to facilitate environments that are healthy, healthy online communication, healthy church gatherings, healthy relationships? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, uh, thank you for listening. Could you pick up my book, Posting Peace? That's the best way to support what I'm doing here. 
Uh, it's great for small groups. You can preach through it with your church. There's questions that you can do at the end of each chapter. Posting piece, why social media divides us and what we can do about it. By the way, uh, if you run a class or a church or a small group, I'd be glad to zoom into that group and be a part of your book group discussion uh, if you want me to be, okay? I love you guys. Make room for the Lord. He knows you by name. I will see you next time. Another-